As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Daryl Van Dyke. Dr. Van Dyke holds a BS, MS, and PhD in computer science and has worked in the computer science industry for over 40 years. He is the author of the book Fire in the Mind, the 1970s Computer Decade, on the evolution of the computer industry, which, by the way, received a five-star review on Amazon. Dr. Van Dyke is also a faculty member at OLLI, explaining in his lectures how the microprocessor has changed the world. Welcome, Dr. Van Dyke. Good morning. Before the 1970s, life was very different in many ways. We certainly didn't have the internet at the touch of a button and readily available in our purses and pockets. Can you explain what happened initially to change that? In 1970, Intel came out with an idea. Actually, they borrowed an idea from a Japanese company called Busycom. This Japanese company had an idea to make a programmable calculator, and they approached Intel, based in Northern California, who was basically a chip manufacturer, a memory chip manufacturer, and they approached them and said, we have some plans, schematics we'd like to show you for a programmable computer chip. Can you help us design that? And Intel said, yes, we can. And so they developed this programmable chip that really revolutionized the world from then on. When I start getting into what all happened with that chip, then it gets exciting. Before I get into that era, though, I want to talk about an analogy, what happened in 1886. It has nothing to do with computers, but it will set the stage, I think, for people to understand what happened in 1970. In 1886, in Germany, a man named Carl Benz developed an internal combustion engine. Now, what's that got to do with computers? Hold on. I will get there. Before 1886, if you wanted to travel anywhere, your choices were limited. You got on a train, you got on a steamship, you used some type of transportation that was available at the time. And think of 
these steamships and trains as large computer companies that existed in the 1950s. So if you wanted to go anywhere, you had to use these big computer companies. So now Carl Benz, in his little internal combustion engine, he gave this to the world and said, make it work somehow. Now think about this. If you have a wagon that was controlled by a horse before, and now someone said, I could put an engine on this, make it go places instead of using that horse. How do I make that happen? So you think about, well, I need a steering wheel. I need brakes to stop it. I need some type of gas tank to provide fuel to it. So now people started taking this little internal combustion engine and they how do we actually make it work? Well, that's what happened in 1970. Intel, partnering with this Japanese company, Busycom, developed this microprocessor. And that was the engine that spawned all these ideas. How do we stop it? How do we start it? How do we provide fuel to it? How do we get memory to it? All these things that you take for granted to now. You open up your laptop, you open up your cell phone, and it just magically works. And that magic comes from a microprocessor that had its roots in 1970. In one decade, you had people take this little engine, again, to use analogy, internal combustion engine, people didn't know what to do with that in the world, but they started getting ideas of how to make the wagon go faster and better and, and how to steer it better and things like that. And that's what happened with the microprocessor. It was thrown to the world and said, here, you figure out what to do with it. So what is a microprocessor? A microprocessor is a programmable electronic gizmo. <laughs> it contains all kinds of circuits. Without getting real technical, a microprocessor is a programmable computer chip, and that means that you can send it instructions to do things. One of the, the original designs of a microprocessor, it said that not only does it have to be programmable, but it has to be able to be interrupted with things that might happen in the normal way of processing. For instance, let's just take your cell phone. You are browsing the internet and you're on Google or Yahoo or something and you get a phone call. That's an interrupt. It interrupts what you were doing. And a microprocessor is in every cell phone today. So again, the basic design of a microprocessor said it's got to be able to be programmed or send it instructions, and it has to be able to be interrupted, and it's got to be able to address memory, and it's got to be able to do other types of operations to talk to a keyboard, a hard drive, or a microphone, or whatever it might be. It has to be able to interface to all these things. Okay, that's a great explanation. It makes it clear how crucial a microprocessor is to all of our expectations of computers and phones today. Now, I remember the photographs of the old computers, as you say, the old steamships, the massive IBM computers that filled entire rooms. The big computer companies at the time must have been very concerned about the introduction and uses of microprocessors especially in their effect on the future of those companies. Yeah, they had no idea what was in front of them. The analogy I use for that is like turning a steamship. You got this steamship coming into a harbor, 
and you, you can't turn it on a dime. It takes a lot of time to turn a big cruise ship around. And that's exactly what was going on with these large companies like IBM. Before 1970, if you were a small or middle-sized company and, and you wanted to get your data processed, whatever data it was, you were tethered to these large companies. You had no choice. You had to spend millions of dollars to buy your own computer, or you found a company who would lease you time to use their big computer that they had already invested in. But we're talking millions, literally millions of dollars for these large computer companies before 1970. In 1970, when Intel came out with their microprocessor, what it did was it started planting a seed that said to people, I no longer need to be tethered to these large companies and pay their millions of dollars to get my data processed. What if I could develop a small machine that sat on your desk that did your accounting and did your taxes and did normal computer stuff that we take for granted today. If we could give you something like that for a few hundred dollars, wouldn't that be better than spending millions of dollars for these large IBM and Burroughs? And there were several large companies at the time, and they were making millions millions and millions of dollars because there was no choice in the industry to get your data processed. I remember the day when a job at IBM was gravy. You were set for life if you worked at IBM. What did they call it? Big Blue? Big Blue. You were set because everyone depended on IBM. That's right. And it took years for those big companies to figure out. Again, you can't turn these big companies on a dime. They had all this investment in these large computers. So when something new came along, basically what they did was they just swept it away and said, no one will ever want a computer on their desk. They couldn't even fathom someone with a cell phone in their pocket cruising the internet and making phone calls and stuff like that. That was their furthest from their imagination in 1970. In fact, one of the companies that was making its name in the 60s was a company called Digital Equipment. They were competing against IBM. Their president was an engineering guy, didn't know marketing that much, and he actually made the statement he couldn't imagine any anyone wanting a PC at home. His company was built on, if you want your data processed, you will use one of our computers that we will sell you for millions of dollars. His name was Ken Olson, was his name. Famous last words. Exactly. Let's get into the 1970s, what happened. In 1970, Intel partnered with this company in Japan called Busycom. As I get into this, I'll, I'll tell you a bunch of if they only would have known types of stuff. Busycom wanted to develop this programmable calculator. Essentially, they had a desktop calculator that you could give it instructions on how to compute square roots and trig functions and other things like that. So they signed an agreement with Intel. Each of them had a 50% ownership in the microprocessor. The microprocessor, by the way, was called the Intel 4004. That was the first model of it. Busycom, Japanese company, and Intel owned this joint patent on this microprocessor. Busycom was trying to sell these calculators in Japan, 
and creating a market for these calculators. They overestimated the amount of sales they could have for this calculator. So what happened was they started to get into financial problems. To help them out of this financial dilemma they found themselves in, they went to Intel and said, what if we sell you our 50% ownership of that microprocessor? In return, you give us some money so we can build up our business more. Pretty fortuitous turn of events for Intel. And Intel agreed to that. To this day, Intel owes their bigness of that one decision made by this Japanese company that gave them the full patent rights to the microprocessor. When the microprocessor made its debut, did people realize the significance? Were there many companies that started saying, hey, I can do something with this? I'm thinking, of course, of Steve Jobs or people like him. The answer is not yet. What happened was Intel was based in Northern California in a place become known as Silicon Valley. It didn't have that name in 1970. It was just close to Stanford. It had a nice environment. It's just a nice place to work. The microprocessor that Intel developed cost $150. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but if you were a student or you were a person wanting to play with this new processor, you didn't have the money. So what happened was a person might buy a microprocessor and would share it with other people saying, let's figure out something to do with this thing. There's a group that was formed in late 1970s called the Homebrew Computer Club. It sounds like an IPA homebrewing beer club. It, it does. And I'm not sure how the actual name came about, but you had some of the most inquisitive people ever put together in this little group that just, they didn't know what they had, but they just wanted to play with it. They had jobs or they were going to school. And then once a week they would get together and they would go, look what I did. And everyone would gather around and they go, that's really cool. And then they would talk for a while and they, they would split up. Next week they'd meet again. And someone would say, look what I did this past week. I took your idea and now did something else with it. So this homebrew computer club just was spawning this wealth of ideas and how to make this thing work. Now, let's get back to the microprocessor itself. Let's get back to your laptop. When you open up your laptop, you have a keyboard, you have a display, you have maybe maybe a CD drive, or you have other things that you can communicate with on that laptop. The microprocessor, when it was handed to these guys, it had no display, it had no keyboard, it had 4,000 bytes of memory. That was to do everything you wanted to do, you had to do it in 4,000 bytes. As compared to how many bytes of memory would I have on an average laptop? Nowadays, when you open up your laptop, you might have 32 gigabytes. That's a billion bytes of memory. Those guys and gals in 1970s would have given their right arm to have that much memory. But the original microprocessor design said, I can address this much stuff. That's all I can address. If you want more than that, you got to figure it out. Think about this. A microprocessor is about the size of your thumb. It was sold to these hackers, these people who wanted to play with it. And they said, you figure it out. You come up with a keyboard 
and a display and these other things to talk to it. Think about that for a second. Let's think something as simple as a keyboard. If you open up your laptop and hit the letter A, what happens to your screen? An A pops up. How does that happen? What goes on there? It's a mystery to me. Exactly. It just happens. These people, in like this homebrew computer club, had to figure all that stuff out. They said, oh, well, we have to be able to see what we enter. So if I type this thing, I now have to route that character somehow to something. And what's that something? Well, you had no wonderful touch screens or, or nice flat laptops. You connected an old TV set that you found that your parents had in the garage, you use that for your display. So you had to figure out some now some interface to talk from your computer chip, this homemade keyboard, to an interface that you developed to talk to a TV set. That's what these people did week in, week after out. So you have Northern California and their little clique of people trying to figure out what to do with this thing. And again, in the 1970s, there was no internet. So how did people around the world start hearing about this microprocessor? Well, you had conferences that people would go to. You had a thing that people don't read now called magazines. There were magazines set aside specifically for electronics. Back buried away in the middle of some electronic magazine might be a little blurb about Intel's new microprocessor. And by the way, this group in California has played around with this and they think they can put a keyboard on it. What happened was that word spread slowly, but then you had people in like Boston area, like MIT. You had people in Ann Arbor, Michigan. You had people in England. You had people in Canada. Canada was a wealth of ideas to use a chip, by the way. The point is that the idea spread, but it spread slowly around the world. But as people started seeing and hearing what people could do with this thing, the idea started to grow, what if I could do XYZ with this thing? You had companies that got spawned in the early 1970s who couldn't make a computer, but they would sell you the parts. For instance, so they would buy a computer chip from Intel and they would buy some memory chips, and they would give you a circuit board, and they would sell you these. You could build anything you wanted to with One of the things I found interesting and surprised me in your book was the fact that you wrote that Singer's sewing machine actually bought Packard Dell Electronics and went on to produce light simulators and GPS devices. I had no idea, and ultimately developed a desktop computer. Yeah. In the 1970s, what happened was in 1970 itself, you had these ideas start to get formed. And in the 1971, think of a graph. And if you could start at zero on this graph and the line would just go up and up and up with ideas. And that's what happened in 1971, 72, 73, 74, the line just kept getting higher, and it kept getting higher with ideas that people were showing what you could do with a microprocessor. There was one company that had absolutely brilliant scientists. In fact, they're still in business today. It's called the Palo Alto Research Center, and they're owned by Xerox. Xerox has always been a 
copier company. And they're located, I think, back in Pennsylvania area was their headquarters. They knew something was happening with this microprocessor thing. So they opened up this research center, again, Palo Alto Research Center. People know it by PARC. The P-A-R-C. And they staffed it with some of the most brilliant scientists that they could find and, and said, we're going to build you a facility right in the heart of Silicon Valley, and we want you to go figure out what's going on with this microprocessor and build us stuff. It's a research center. They did that, and they came up with, it, it was just a sandbox for people to play with every day. They would come into work and th- think of a facility where all you did, you had a room full of scientists, you had a building for a f- full of scientists, and all you did was say, what if we did this? Every day, in and out, you did that. Every day. Let's try this. Let's do this. So they came out with a wonderful machine. They, they, in fact, they came up with lots of ideas. The mouse. The mouse did not exist before the folks at Palo Alto Research Center developed the mouse, that they wanted some way to point to something on the screen. So they developed the mouse. They were involved with having their machine talk to another machine. Think about that. Today, on your laptop or on your cell phone, you just open up a browser and you're communicating to everything. It's a given. I don't even think about it. Exactly. You have all these machines and somebody said, what if we can get them to share information back and forth? So you started getting communication developed. Was that the beginning of the internet? Yes. At first, machines would talk to other machines via their own proprietary way to do it. And then somebody said, well, what if I want to talk to Joe Blow's computer? How do I do that? So then you had ideas get to be formed on some open protocol, if you will, some open communication, how two machines of two different flavors could talk to each other. Remember, you still had your big companies, you still had IBM, Burroughs, Univac, on and on and on. You still had those. But now you had literally hundreds of computer companies who all thought they had a better idea. And I'm not exaggerating when I say literally. There are two reasons I wrote my book. Let me back up and talk about a little history there. I work for a small company in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And we thought at the time, this was in the early 1970s, about 1974, we thought that we had developed the first PC ever. Now, we didn't call it a PC. It was just a nice machine that sat on your desk. It weighed about 40 pounds, but it had a keyboard, had a monitor. It had had disk drives that we could access, read and write to. It had memory. And for all practical purposes, we had what would anyone consider a PC. We were one of probably 50 people who had developed their own similar type computer. So there were 50 PC, if you will, makers out there that were all doing something similar. So you have all these companies developing something, and they made these computers not just for fun now. They wanted to supply them to companies. They wanted to show them to companies and saying, look, I can give you my computer. You can process your data on it, and you don't have to be tethered to those large computer companies and pay those million dollars anymore. I will sell you one of our computers, and by the way, I will show you how you can connect them all together to make a semi-large computer. But again, you don't have to go to IBM or some large company to get your data processed. You can do it yourself. 
now we're talking about mid-1970s. Playtime was over. The chip was getting accepted as really something, really something nice. Companies were starting to use e-chips in machines that they could market to companies. People, you and me, did not have a clue of what to do with the PC. If someone handed you a PC in 1970, you'd go, what do I do with this thing? It was very limited on what it can do because you had to write custom programs to make it work, to do your accounting and to do your bookkeeping and stuff like that. But there were no apps like Google or Microsoft Word or PowerPoint or anything like that. There were none of those applications existing then. It was basically a machine that was made for businesses, and few thought about the possibility of putting that machine on a person's desk, put on your desk at home to do something with it. About 1976, I think is the date, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, they were part of the original homebrew computer club. In fact, Jobs would sit into these things. He thought himself as a programmer, but he wasn't. He was more of a what, what's going on type of thing. He just wanted to sit in on it. Steve Wozniak was 180 degrees from Steve Jobs. Steve Wozniak was a hacker's hacker. He would pick up a chip and say, oh, uh, I, I need a keyboard on that. And he would figure out how he would go buy a keyboard and figure out how to interface it to that chip. Every week he would come up with these ideas. And finally, Steve Jobs told Steve Wozniak, stop doing this. Your ideas are wonderful. We can take your ideas and we can put them into a little company. Don't share with them anymore. Let us use it to make money. Don't share them anymore. That's exactly right. But Steve Wozniak was truly a hacker's hacker. He loved just to tinker. Jobs formed Apple. They developed their first little machine that Wozniak put together. They sold it for, I think the price was... $500, and they sold 50 of these to start with. But it was a box of parts, basically, and did not have a display. But in Wozniak's description, when they sold you this machine, they told you how to interface it to a TV set. So you had to go find a TV set and make it all work. And the keyboard itself was literally a keyboard that was just, it wasn't enclosed in anything. For instance, when you open up your laptop, you have a nice border around it, and the keyboard is situated in there really nice. In Apple's first machine that they sold, they literally gave you a keyboard that would just float on your desk. It would move around and, and was hard to use. So you had to go get a piece of wood or some metal, you had to put the keyboard in there to make it stable so you could type on it. Oh, the things we take for granted. I exactly. But people bought this stuff. They would spend $500 for basically a box of parts because they were so excited of what they could do with it. So you had some companies who had real business ideas on how to use the chip. So you had to write programs specifically for some work for that company. It couldn't do anything else. I mean, again, you couldn't browse the internet. There was no internet. You couldn't play games on it. There were no games on it. But interesting enough, these hackers, the Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak's of the world, thought that this would be a perfect 
gaming device. So you had a company like Atari who came out with a box that you could play games with it. It had its own interface to a TV set. It had an input, which is basically controllers. You controlled games and stuff like that. And you could program it by putting in these cartridges, the different games. They had the essence of a programmable PC, but they didn't know it. They wanted to get into the gaming market, and that was their focus. If they had just stepped back and thought about, you know, maybe we could make this more flexible into some type of PC, they could have changed the world from their perspective. But instead, they wanted to focus on gaming, and that's all they wanted to do. That's so interesting. I never had any idea of the role Atari and early gaming systems had to play in the development of personal computers. Yep, that's right. I mean, Wozniak, all he wanted to do was play games on it. He thought the Apple, the little machine they developed, was the best gaming device anyone would ever want. He could not fathom anyone using this for business. That was the first Apple machine that came out, Apple One would call it that. So now the Apple II came out. It had a keyboard actually attached in a nice little container. It had its own little monitor attached. It was packaged brilliantly, and Jobs knew that he could sell a lot of these things. He tried to sell it. No one was buying it. Why? Well, because it was still a toy. You couldn't do anything with it. It was packaged nice. It was sold for about, I think it was about $1,200. It was really a nice package, but what do you do with this thing? By chance, coincidentally, randomly, this guy on the East Coast developed this little spreadsheet, and he went to Jobs and said, I think companies would buy your machine more, or you could sell more to them, if you offered them some application to use on it. And he said, my little spreadsheet is perfect. So think of Excel today, where you go in and you type in amounts and it totals up fields and stuff like that for you. That's what this first spreadsheet did. He sold the rights to this for Apple for like $2,000. And he said, you own it now. If it wasn't for that, it could be argued by many that Apple would have gone out of business. People did not know what to do with this wonderful little machine that Jobs and Wozniak had created. But because they had an app, this little spreadsheet, he could go to companies and say, it's not a toy, it's not a gaming device, you can actually use it for your business to do real accounting stuff. That's incredible. It started selling because of a contact from another person who saw an application for his spreadsheet with their early Apple computer. When did what we think of as the internet develop? When did that happen? So that happened in the late 70s. It was driven by the people at Park Palo Alto Research Center folks were experimenting around with how computers communicate with each other. But basically, they were focused on how their own machines could talk to each other. You had a group in Europe who thought bigger who realized that there had to be a way to communicate from IBM, Burroughs, other big systems, and even these PCs, how we can get them, or not PCs, but small computers, how we get them all talking to each other. There was a group in Europe, actually a consortium, that came up with the idea of, they didn't call it the internet, of how to communicate computer to computer 
not the same type of computer, but different types of computers. The people at Park took this idea and said, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, we'll make it better. And again, this is part of the 1970s. Everybody was stealing ideas from everybody else. Somebody would come up with something, I can make it better. Somebody else would say, I can make that better. What you had was you had people picking up stuff that they had heard or seen and trying to make it better all the time. Now, what this did to the computer chip manufacturers was incredible because Intel had a monopoly on microprocessor chips. But then you had other companies who made memory chips, saw a potential market for these microprocessors, and they jumped into the market too. So you had companies like Motorola, another little company that you've never heard of now probably called Zilog. But these companies all had better ideas than the other guy, at least they thought, right? What you see in the 1970s is you start to see ideas of how to use a microprocessor. Microprocessor developers said, oh, I can't keep up with what they want to do. I need to develop faster chip for them. All that did was spawn more ideas. That then spawned the microprocessor developers to come up with faster chips, which spawned more ideas, faster chips, more ideas, faster chips. So essentially at the end of 1970, you started to get a feel of what the power of these microprocessors could do. They were fast. They were much faster. Again, the first one that came out could process, could only address 4,000 bytes of memory, and it executed instructions I'm going to throw out a big number here, but trust me, it's not that big. The micro, first microprocessor that Intel came up with could execute 60,000 instructions a second. Now, a second is a long time in computer stuff that goes on inside. A second is a long time. So to execute 60,000 instructions sounds like a big number, but let me put it in perspective to where we are today. Last year in China... They have a supercomputer that they developed their own computer chips on. Their computer is called Sunway, and it executed 90 petaflops. What's a petaflop? A petaflop is 10 to the 15th power. Now think about, write down one on your paper and put 15 zeros after that. It's a huge number. That's a huge number. It executed 90 petaflops per second. Think about 60,000 instructions per second to now 10 to the 15th power times 90 instructions a second. So I'm wondering, given the great leap forward that microprocessors gave technology, do you see anything in the future that might be comparable to that? Yes. But before we leave the 1970s, I, I got one little story to tell you. Let me back up and talk about the book just for a second. The book was created primarily because I was having a conversation with an old colleague from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And we were talking about how wonderful the creative days it was back to develop our little PC and do stuff. And just out of curiosity, we went on the internet and said, okay, so what's written about our little company? We could find nothing. Zero. I went, oh, there were brilliant minds, not, I'm not talking about myself, but there were just brilliant folks working at our little company, and they contributed so much. I sat down and wrote the book to 
have a reference for people who worked in the industry for them to see, oh, someone wrote about my little company and what we did. I also wrote it as a research book for people who are getting into the computer world. I want them to appreciate and understand what happened in the 1970s, how these ideas got formed, and take it from there and then see where we're at today. You open up your cell phone, and again, you just take it for granted, but there's so much stuff that those ideas that make that cell phone work or your ideas to make your laptop work were spawned from a group of people around the world who are just making things better. And there's one guy I want to talk to you specifically about. His name is Jim Murez. Uh, I tracked this guy down because I found this obscure little article. is a one-line reference to him in some computer magazine. Again, when I'm researching my book, I'm reading magazines and old newspapers and talking to friends, say, do you know anything about this? It was just one item that just intrigued me because it said he had owned a patent for the first portable computer. I am tenacious when it comes to tracking down people. So I start making phone calls. It's an odd spelling, or his name is not an average name. His name, his last name is M-U-R-E-Z. So not a lot of Murez as I, I figured in the world. Anyway, so I start tracking down phone directories and trying to find anybody that might match this. After several calls, I tracked the guy down and ended up doing several interviews with him. So he lived in Los Angeles, and he had a buddy that lived in Santa Barbara, which is north about 80 miles or so. And every weekend, he'd go to his buddy's house. So Jim, Jim Urez, had bought a computer, I don't remember the make of it. It is a typical one of those. It had a, a screen on it, had a keyboard, and it was bulky. It was like 40 pounds of stuff. But that was the PC at that time. And Jim, he wanted to write applications and games for it and things like that. And his buddy in Santa Barbara was also a similar type of hacker. So every weekend, Jim would throw this big clunky 40 pounds of stuff in his backseat of his little car and drive to Santa Barbara. One weekend, he said, this is stupid. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to package this up and put a handle on it so I wouldn't have to figure out how to, to lift 40 pounds of stuff, put it in my back seat. So he started tinkering with, he took the computer boards out of this computer and he literally cut them in two and figured out how to wire them differently together. And essentially what he did was he made it smaller and smaller and smaller. He had a little display unit that he figured out how to interface it to. And so he had a portable computer. He didn't quite know it, but he did. There's a sad ending to all this, by the way. Not to Jim, but actually to his computer. Jim said, you know, I got this idea, and he's got a buddy that works at... I think it was Lockheed. Remember the old adage, you get what you pay for? Well, his buddy at Lockheed was an attorney, and he helped Jim write up the patent for this portable computer. Unfortunately for Jim, his lawyer friend said something like, the latches are four inches from the side, and the keyboard, it looks like this, and it's got a latch to close it at the top that's eight inches from the middle, and blah, blah, blah. And he wrote it so specific. So Jim did, he still today, 
owns the first patent for a portable computer. But again, it was made out of necessity. He wanted to be able to lug it to Santa Barbara to his buddy's house. It was another idea that was spawned in the 70s of how to make a portable computer. Again, the sad end of this is that Jim's attorney wrote the patent so specific that you had other companies like IBM, Compaq, and there were a couple of others that took that idea and made their own portable by putting the latches instead of four inches, made it three inches oh, and, so and did things like that. And now these other companies had all this money to put behind it. And Jim, he actually created about 20 of these total. It's so important to have a factual history of such a vital process that contributed so much to the world as we know and depend on it today. Yeah, I was so proud of to track this guy down. Yes. And, and that's just one of several interviews I did with people with these ideas. To talk to these guys, they weren't doing it to make a lot of money. They were doing it for the adventure and the creativity that they could do back then. So now back to your question today. Today, when I look at the computer industry, it's money-driven. Uh, you have Google and you have uh, Facebook. And these are apps. They aren't creating really anything new. They're taking old technology and they're now building on the internet and other things out there. But they're driven by money. That's the way I see it now. And the folks in the 70s were doing it for the fun of, can I get this thing to work? Back to your question is, where do I see all this stuff going? Technology is going to get faster and faster and faster. Again, back to the 90 petaflops type computer. And by the way, so that was 1918, I believe the Chinese did that. In 1919, IBM announced a faster one. So you have a faster one now than the Chinese. Trust me, next year, the Chinese won't take that lying down. They will say, we have a faster one than the IBM. So you have this constant leapfrogging of people wanting to do things better and faster. It still goes on today. A lot of stuff's been written about AI, about how computers will eventually rule the world. And, and I don't think we will get to that point, but I think where we will see computers really become really the next generation of things they can do is you can give them a problem and say, give me some ideas. For instance, we might think we know all about cancer. We documented how cancer gets formed and, and how to treat it and things like that. But what if you could dump a scenario to a computer and saying, find me a cure for cancer. And it just goes and it works for a week, throwing out ideas and coming up with this and that and the other. At the end of that time or in, or in a day, gives you a sheet of paper that says, try this, just name something. I, I don't know, many people know the game of Go. Go is a Chinese game and it is, think of a checkerboard on steroids. It's got nothing but squares. And essentially, you have two people trying to compete with each other on how to capture other people's territory. It is so more complicated than chess. You can write a computer program to play chess. And it will say, if this person does this, make this move. They do this, make this move. Very cut and dried, really. In Go, it's all about strategy, about where to place your your rocks, your blots on the board and capture the other guy. And it's a very, very complicated game. There are Go masters who are truly at the top of the game. And they, I think it was about a year ago, they told this computer, play this 
go master and had no idea of what really would happen. But they had programmed the computer to just come up with its own scenarios and try to figure out ways to do it. They didn't say if if the person moves there, move here, they move there, move here. They said essentially they move there, figure out something. What it did was within about four moves, it made a move that the the go master would have never in a thousand years thought of and end up getting beat. They played like three games. The computer won every game, and he retired. He said, there's no reason to play anymore because I can't beat this computer. And again, the point is, the computer wasn't programmed to move to counter what the other person did. If they moved here, move here. If they moved there, move here. It was, they make a move figure out what to do next. And again, that's where AI is going. Whether it's climate change or cancer research or something else, they're going to throw a problem to the computer and say, figure out something. Give me some ideas on what to do. And I think that's the next stage of computer evolution. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating, and I know after reading your book that we have only scraped the surface of your knowledge and the information that you put together. I appreciate your sharing it with us. Been my pleasure. Thank you. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Daryl Van Dyke. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.